appreciate it. Let's pray together. Father God, thank you for such a gorgeous day, for the privilege of being in this very special place where we can really sing about the victory we have in you, the victory that is only in you, and the victory that is always in you. Help us to turn to you for that victory. Wherever we're attacked today, wherever we face the obstacles of this world, help us to find that, help us to turn to you, help us to remember that we just sang those words. Now, Father, teach us how to live a victory in Jesus this day and every day. I pray for me and us in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I found some product warning labels the other day that I thought were somewhat ironic and wanted to start with them today on a Sears hairdryer. Do not use while sleeping. These are real things. I mean, these, I'm not making this up. They actually thought they needed to put that on a hairdryer. I'm not sure how that would work, but nonetheless, on a bag of Fritos. You could be a winner. No purchase necessary. Details inside. So how does that work? I mean, you know, you just open it up, find it, and then put it back on the shelf. I mean, how does this work? Here we go. On Swanson Frozen Dinner, serving suggestion, defrost. That would be a good suggestion, wouldn't you say? I mean, these are real product labels, believe it or not. Marks and Spencer bread pudding. Product will be hot after heating. <laughs> Glad to know. The package of a Rowenta iron. Do not iron clothes on body. It's, I guess somebody did that, and that's why they had to put this warning on an iron. Well, all right. Here we go. On a Korean kitchen knife. Warning, keep out of children. I assume something was lost in translation there someplace. Uh, one, one hopes. An American Airlines package of nuts. Instructions, open package, eat nuts. In that order, by the way. I think you'd probably want it in that order. And then, last but not least, on a Swedish chainsaw, do not attempt to stop the chain with your hands. Again, I guess somebody did that, right? And makes me feel like I'm not as dumb as I thought I was. Well, this should be the product warning over our chapel. When you came into church today, you should have seen this. Be self-controlled and alert. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. When I became a Christian at the age of 15, I had this kind of idea that once I trusted in Christ, once I started going to church and reading the Bible and praying and all of that, that I would not face temptations like I had before, that my life would get better and easier. And you can find TV preachers that will tell you that, that if you just have enough faith, you'll never cough and always drive a Cadillac, as they say, and, and everything would be good. And I found the opposite to be true. I found that, in fact, temptations intensified. I found that I was being attacked in some ways. It became obvious. And over time, I began kind of to figure out what that is. I think I've told you the story about the Christian and non-Christian walking down the road, and all at once the devil jumps out from behind a bush, and the non-Christian behind, hides behind the Christian and says, quick, protect me. And the Christian says, no, he's already got me, it's you. He's already got you, it's me he's after. Sorry, he's already got you, it's me he's after. If you're not a Christian, you already belong to the enemy. If Jesus is your Lord, he can't get your soul, so he wants your witness. And the temptations that you and I face, because we are believers are a fact of life. One of the deceptions is that if you really love Jesus and really pray and really worship and all of that, that you won't face these temptations. You'll probably face them more. Now, aren't you glad you came to church? Huh? You have a bigger target on your back for coming to worship today. Now, the good news is that you have greater strength to defeat the enemy for coming to worship today. The good news is that greater who, is he who's in you than he who's in the world. The good news is that the power of God is greater than the attack of the enemy. 
Always, always. And that's what we're going to see today. We're walking through the life of Peter. We're looking at various episodes in his life that speak to our lives. And as we continue to do that, we're going to come today to one of the strangest stories in all the Bible. You may be familiar with it. It's in Acts chapter 5, and it's Ananias and Sapphira. And it's what happened in the early church as a result of an offering. And it's a really odd story, but there's a really important lesson inside it. So here's the background. Peter's preaching at Pentecost back in Acts chapter 2. People from 15 different language groups to Jerusalem, right down here for Pentecost. And you've had 3,000 people respond to the gospel. An incredible Christian spiritual movement that's begun here. But now a lot of these people stay. They've joined the, you want to trade? Now that one seemed a little weaker. Is that better? Yeah, thank you very much, Chad. Uh, they have come here just to visit for Passover and Pentecost, and now that Jesus is their Lord and they've joined the church, they stay. But they don't speak the language, a lot of them. They don't have jobs. They don't have houses. They don't have ways of supporting themselves, a lot of them. So in Acts chapter 4, the Bible says, There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them, brought the proceeds of what was sold, laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, one of my favorite people in the Bible, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him, brought the money, laid it at the apostles' feet. So what's happening here is to support this incredible movement, this early Christian and these people that have come from all over, you start seeing this um, uh, just remarkable response from wealthy people to come forward and sell their fields and their properties and put that in a common treasury so that people in need can have their needs met. That's the background. Now Acts chapter 5 verse 1 says, a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property. The name Ananias means one whom Jehovah has blessed. Sapphira means beautiful. And in that day and time, that was important. Those names were important. You didn't name people like you do today. You didn't just name them for a relative or because you happened to like the name. You named them for the character or the background that you wished to connote. So for someone to name their baby one whom Jehovah has blessed before they've even lived their life would indicate that this person came into a family that had been greatly blessed by God that this baby is blessed just to be born, in other words. I don't know about you. I wasn't specifically greatly blessed when I was born. I wasn't born with a silver spoon in my mouth, as they say. My parents were fine. They told us we were middle class. I found out later we probably really weren't, but we kind of thought we were anyway. And I certainly wouldn't have the name one whom Jehovah has blessed just by virtue of the circumstances into which I was born. Does that make sense? wasn't born into royalty, wasn't born into great wealth. Well, apparently Ananias was. He was named this for a reason. He apparently was somebody who even from his birth was a person of great, of, uh, great possessions, of, of great wealth and, uh, and social significance. And he marries someone who'd been given the name Beautiful, indicating perhaps either something their parents wished to be true or something they believed to be true from the moment of her birth. What we've got here is an A-list couple. All right? These folk would have been at tonight's Oscars. They would have been invited. They'd have been on the red carpet. They would have been interviewed by uh, uh, Lara Spencer and all the stuff that's going to go on tonight. They would have been known to the day and the culture. They would be like the Rockefellers or one of the Kennedys or somebody born into, into wealth and cultural significance. They, they would be people of, of great social value. 
All right? And so they sold a piece of property just like Barnabas did. They were wealthy enough to have property to sell, which was kind of unusual in that day and time. The Roman Empire owned a whole lot of the empire. You had to buy from the empire. And so to even own property was itself somewhat significant. And to have so much means that you could sell it was especially so. There was not really a middle class in the first century. You had the 1% or even half of 1% that had the means and everybody else that kind of served them. And so this is one of the one percenters here that has enormous means and therefore sells a piece of property to help those that are in greater need. And with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. Well, now to this point, that's completely, I mean, fine. That's appropriate. If we decided we wanted to take an offering here, let's say it's Christmas, and we want to help in underprivileged children to have Christmas gifts in the area or something like that. And so one of you wanted to sell a property that you have and donate part of the proceeds here, we're not going to get mad at you and say, well, now, wait a minute. You've got to give us everything you sold or you didn't give us anything. That's not the point. He had every, as, as you'll see in a second, he had every right to do that. He had every right to sell this property and give as much of it as he wanted to. The problem isn't what he gave. It's the appearance of what he gave. That's the issue. Peter says, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? After it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you've contrived this deed in your heart? You've not lied to man, but to God. And Peter knows it, and he calls Ananias out on it. That Satan has misled Ananias to believe that he was doing a good thing by giving the money, but that he could serve himself while he served them, and he could make an appearance that wasn't true, and he could be deceptive in his benevolence. And in so doing, he hasn't just lied to men, he's lied to God. And here's what happens. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard of it. Luke doesn't say. Maybe he had a heart attack. Maybe he had a stroke. Maybe he was so terrified that he died of some physical um, issue. Maybe God directly caused his death. The text doesn't say. And then it goes on. The young men rose and wrapped him and carried him out and buried him. He had to be buried within 24 hours in Judaism. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in not knowing what had happened. Peter said to her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. She said, yes, for so much. In other words, she's repeating the lie that they sold the land for the amount that they had donated was the lie. And you understand, they kept back part of it. They gave part of it, but they claimed they'd sold the land for the amount they were giving. That's the lie. And she is complicit in the lie as well. Peter gives her an opportunity to repent. He gives her an opportunity to to uh, confess about this. And she perpetuates the myth that the part they gave was all they got for the land, that they hadn't kept back part of it for themselves. Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead And they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. Aren't you glad for this devotional text in the Bible, huh? Yeah. 
If you're looking for something to read little children, you might not start here. This might not be the place you do it. Although, you know, I guess if I was ever going to preach a stewardship sermon, I could preach it on this, right, and warn you, if you don't give everything you said you give, look what will happen to you. But really, that's not the point. It's an odd story in some ways. The people that crucified Jesus weren't executed for doing that. The people that stoned Stephen to death weren't, didn't die as a result. Paul persecuted Christians, and he didn't die. Why were Ananias and Sapphira judged so severely simply for not being honest about how much they sold a piece of property for? Why is that so severe, we would wonder? Is God like that? Is God that mean? Is he that angry? Is he that vengeful? Is he that kind of cosmic killjoyish? And if he sees you doing anything wrong, he strikes you down with a thunderbolt. Is that really the story here? Absolutely, categorically not. Here's kind of what's going on, all right, at this early stage in the beginning of this Christian movement. Ananias and Sapphira, as I said before, are very public figures. They're very well known in the culture, in the larger community. If they get away with this deception and it becomes public, then what this will do to undermine the credibility, the integrity, the character of the entire Christian movement will be deadly to the Christian movement. And God will not share his glory. He just won't do that. What they did was a matter of public record. Anybody could go look at the records and find out how much they actually sold the land for versus what they said they sold it for and gave to the church. The people they sold the land to would know that. It wouldn't be hard to connect the dots. If I claim that I sold a piece of land for $10,000 and gave it to you, and down the way is a guy that knows that I actually sold it for $20,000 and kept 10 of it for myself, that wouldn't be hard to figure out. This was not a brilliant deception on their part. This was going to get out. This was going to come out. And when it did, what this would mean to the character and integrity of the entire church for some of the most esteemed leaders of the church to be that deceptive was apparently catastrophic enough that this would be the result. It's a tough text, isn't it? But whatever Satan meant to do in leading Ananias and Sapphira to do this did not happen. Verse 11 says, here we go, great fear came upon the whole church and all who heard of these things. And by fear, it means not just fear in the sense of terror, but fear in the sense of awe, in the sense of reverence. God really does know everything. And he really is holy. And he really is righteous. And he really is just, is the idea here. So let's talk about this. The Bible says in 1 Peter 5, 8, your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. How do you kill him? How do you keep from being Ananias and Sapphira? Because what the enemy did then, he wants to do today. Just like he destroyed or tried to destroy their witness, he wants to do the same thing to you and me. The same thing that he did to deceive them, he wants to do to deceive us. So what do we do? Let me consider four points real quickly. First of all, you should expect temptation. As I said before, when you follow Jesus, that just makes you a threat to the enemy. You should expect him to come against you. And the greater your influence the greater the threat. The more you're on the front lines, the more you're the focus of the enemy. With the means you have, with the visibility that you have, with the influence you have on the culture, you ought to expect this. Ananias and Sapphira's story is not in the Bible for their sake, right? It's in the Bible as a warning to us that when you're a person of influence and means and you're a follower of Jesus, you should expect that the enemy will try to undermine your witness and your integrity. A second point is that sin kills. 
That's why the Bible says, submit yourselves to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Sin is spiritual malignancy. It's spiritual cancer. And if you don't get it out, it'll kill you. You ever heard of a doctor that if someone was discovered to have a malignancy, said, ah, just leave it alone. It'll be fine. Don't worry about it. It'll probably go away. You know, these things kind of cure themselves. Don't worry about it. You ever have that prognosis? Understand that the enemy's trying to kill your witness, trying to kill your integrity, trying to kill everything about you. He hates you because he hates your father. He can't attack the Lord, so he attacks his kids. The best way to hurt me is to hurt my kids. Sin kills. That's why you want to stay submitted to the Lord and resist the devil. So the next time you face a temptation, submit and then resist. Say, Lord, I'm being tempted to do X. Lord, I'm being tempted to do this. So I want to submit to you and ask you to help me resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Submit, resist, flee is how this works. But in that order, submit, resist, flee. Because as the story shows, sin kills. Third fact, every sin is known to God. The Bible says, be sure your sin will find you out. The Lord knew what was going on in Ananias and Sapphira's life when they thought no one did. God sees our hearts, doesn't he? He knows what's going on inside us. We think we're getting away with things, but we're not. There's really two things going on here. On the one side, the Lord is delaying punishment to give us a chance to repent. The Bible says that God is not uh, slow, as some count slowness, but he's willing, he's patient, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. And so if there's some sin in your life that you've not yet repented of, it's not that God doesn't know it, and that's why you've not faced punishment yet. It's that God's giving you a chance to repent before he has to step in. Conversely, the enemy might well be giving you an opportunity to continue to live in this sin so that the ultimate consequences will be even greater when they come. The more the cancer spreads, the worse it becomes, right? I've known pastors that were exposed for moral failure. And the moral failure didn't start the week before. But the enemy was letting them climb further and further and further up the ladder so that when they fell, they'd hurt more people coming down. And their fall would be even more public and even more damaging. What the Catholic Church is meeting and talking about in these days with clergy abuse scandal is just obviously horrific. As a former Baptist pastor, I can tell you what came in the news recently about Southern Baptist clergy abuse scandals was horrific. And the enemy is so pleased, isn't he, with the ways that the scandals of a very small percentage, I don't mean in any way to be, in any way to be justifying the horrific sins of clergy abuse scandals, but they're a very small percentage. I mean, in Baptist life, I did the calculations, and it was something like 0.05% of Baptist clergy that had been a part of this. Very small percentage. And that's all it takes to make headlines on CNN and Fox News and HuffPost and all over the world. That's all it takes. The fact that we think we're getting away with it doesn't mean we are. It just means God wants to give us a chance to repent, and the enemy wants to give us a chance for the cancer to spread. So that's why the right time to repent is today. On both counts. One last fact. The time to repent is now and not tomorrow and not next week because this is the only day you have. Tomorrow's promised to no one, right? You saw the plane crash over the weekend, the Amazon flight. You know, airfares, air travel is safer than it's ever been, but it's still not safe. When we're done, Janet and I are going to get back on I-20. That's a religious experience, you know? 
Uh, there's <laughs> tomorrow's promise to no one. You know, there are people that live natural lives and then they die when pre pretty much they thought they would. And we're grateful for people that get to do it that way. But that's not usually how it works, is it? And the time to repent is now. But the good news is, greater he is he who is in you than he who is in the world. And no matter what the enemy is doing, this lion that's trying to prowl and attack you, if you learn from Ananias and Sapphira, you don't have to be Ananias and Sapphira. If we'll learn from the story, we won't repeat the story. And we'll be Peter as opposed to Ananias. And we'll have victory in Christ because we asked for victory in Christ. So we're working off this metaphor of this lion, this spiritual lion. So let's close with this. This is Travis Kaufman. You may have seen this story. Travis was jogging in Colorado a couple weeks ago. He was out on one of the pathways. He heard a rustling in the leaves behind him. He turned around just in time to watch a mountain lion pounce, attack him. But Travis did everything right from what the authorities say. He didn't try to turn and run because that just excites the predator instinct in the animal. They say if you're attacked by a lion, you have to fight back. You have to stand your ground. You have to get as big as you can. You have to get as strong as you can, and you have to fight back. In this case, the mountain lion got its jaws on Travis's wrist and began clawing his face. So Travis reached down, got a rock, and smashed it against the lion's head. And they fell down the cliff together, the, the hill together, and Travis was able to get his foot on the lion's neck and suffocated it. That's how he survived. He then jogged three miles to find someone to help him, and they took him to the hospital. He had 28 stitches in his face, his nose, and his wrist. But he survived because he fought back. That's God's invitation to us today. So let's pray. Can you name a lion, a spiritual lion, that uh, has found you? Is there a place in your life of temptation or frustration or discouragement, some place where the enemy is at work? Name it. Submit it to God. Ask him for the strength to resist the devil. Now claim the fact that he will flee from you. Father God, as grievous as is the story of Ananias and Sapphira, we thank you that it's in Scripture so it doesn't have to be in us so that we can learn from their story and not repeat their story. May we this week have the victory in Jesus that Jesus offers us right now. In his name we pray. Amen. God bless. Have a great week.